as we keep watching our news and seeing the results for last week's election and wonder what's going on and when are we going to find out uh, <clears throat> who actually is our, our winner. For the last week or last couple of weeks, the news has been talking about and posting places that are preparing for violence where they're building fences and getting ready for the violence after this election. Um, and, you know, the truth is, where have we seen violence over the last months? Uh, and the rioting and the looting and the arson. It doesn't come from those who were President Trump supporters. Uh, and so I think that probably President Trump's supporters won't be looting and rioting and causing fires. I see posts on Facebook and Instagram. I see posts about God still being on his throne, that God is still in control. And, and I believe that that's true, but that doesn't mean the near future is going to be rosy because there have been a lot of times when Christian people in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ have gone through difficult times even though God is still in control. This morning I want us to continue our study in the book of Exodus. We're, last week we looked at Exodus 15 where it talked about the people of Israel, the children of Israel, stopping in the desert to worship, to praise God for their deliverance and uh, from, from Egypt and from the Egyptian army. And now we're going to move into the point of time where they're in the desert. This is the time between the Red Sea. They're on their way to Mount Sinai where they're going to receive the law. And then they're going to head over to the promised land where they will refuse to go in. They'll be disobedient to God, and they'll refuse his direction. And so God will send them back into the desert where they'll spend the next 40 years. They will die in the desert, and their, their uh, children then will be able to go into the promised land. But what I want us to look at today in chapter 16 is how God has made perfect provision for our need. And whether this is God's perfect provision for the need of the children of Israel, or whether it's God's provision for the people of the children of America, or whether it's just simply the provision for God's people everywhere for, for all times, uh, God made perfect provision for our need. And even though we don't deserve it, we're guilty of causing most of our own problems. But even 3,500 years ago, in the wilderness between Egypt and Canaan, God not only was making provision for Egypt, for Israel, he was also making provision for you. He was making provision for your greatest needs. And what he did was make a picture, put on a, a picture for you to see how he was going to make provision. Now, we've been running through this book of Exodus. We're not taking time for an in-depth study. Uh, we're just kind of hitting the high points as we go through. But chapter 16 is a gold mine. We could spend the rest of the year, and I don't think it would be boring in the least. It would be as exciting as learning that the creator of the universe has made special preparation 
for your greatest need. Now, he does that in this chapter by a uh, method that we call a type. And let me, let me explain to you what, what a type is. For those of you who can remember typewriters, uh, I know some of you back there have never even heard of a typewriter or seen one, but a typewriter was a machine that you used to write on paper, and you pressed a button, you pressed a key, and a, a uh, lever came up with a, with a letter on it, and it hit a piece of ribbon that had ink on it and pushed it against the paper, and it left an imprint of that letter on the paper. That imprint is called type. It's a type. It's not really the letter. It's an image of the letter. It's an impression of the letter left upon the letter, uh, left upon the paper. And so this this is what we're looking at here. When we look at the pictures that God has point, painted in this passage, what we see is not the real thing. It's the image of the real thing. Uh, we're going to talk about manna. We're going to talk about the, the different things that happened when the children of Israel were in the desert. And when he distributed the manna, and we'll talk about that in a minute, uh, each one was to gather enough for, for one day for themselves. And what we have here is a miracle. There is no explanation for the manna. Uh, there are people who try to explain it. I've read lots of explanations for it. I've taken classes in Old Testament and Old Testament theology that try to uh, explain exactly what that manna was. But the truth is, is there's no real explanation for the manna. We'll talk about this in a second. But it's a picture of God's provision for us. In verse 10 of chapter 16, it says, It came about as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the sons of Israel, that they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the clouds. And we've been talking about the glory of God. We've been talking about seeing the glory of God. And I've told you about Moses. That's where we began, was back in the later chapters of Genesis 33 and 34, where Moses wanted to see the glory of God. And he asked God, Lord, let me see your glory. And, and we've talked about what the glory of God is. But I don't know exactly what that means where they saw the glory of God in the clouds. What did they see? You know, if you want to do something that, that's really fun, uh, get, get on your search engine, uh, either DuckDuckGo or Google or what, whatever you use. Get on your search engine and type in glory of God in the clouds. Glory of God in the clouds. And then look at the images. Click on images and look at the different pictures of clouds uh, that, that you see. And, and you've seen pictures like that. You've looked up into the sky and seen the clouds. And the very first thing that comes to your mind somehow or another is God. You see, you see God in that cloud. You see the hand of God. You see the picture of God. You see the face of God. You see the glory of God, the colors and the explanations of, of God, and, and you know that you're seeing something beyond the ordinary. Well, somehow or another, the children of Israel looked up into the clouds that day 
and they saw something that reminded them of the glory of God. Now let's read just a couple of verses out of chapter 16. I'm going to begin with verse 4, Exodus 16, verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. And it will come about on the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. And then skipping down to verse 13. So it came about at the evening that the quails came up and covered the camp. And in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. And when the layer of dew evaporated, behold, on the surface of the wilderness there was a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the sons of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it every man as much as he should eat. You shall take an omer apiece according to the number of persons each of you has in his tent. And the sons of Israel did so. And some gathered much and some little. But when they measured it with an omer, he who had gathered much had no excess, and he who gathered little had no lack, and every man gathered as much as he should eat. So the verse 10 that I read about the glory of God was between those two passages that I read. And so they received this manna from God, and at the same time, there's the first mention in all of the Bible of the glory of God. Genesis chapter, I mean, Exodus chapter 16, verse 10 is the first mention of the glory of God. And it comes when they see the manna. Now, manna is a combination of a couple of words, manha, manha. And the translation of it is, what is it? And so back there in uh, the passage that we read, um, in verse 15, it says, when the sons of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? What they really said was, manna, manna, for they didn't know what it was. And so basically, they began to call it manna, or what is it? Or something that we might say today, they began to call it the whatchamacallit. You know, they didn't know what to call it. They didn't know what it was. It's nothing that they'd ever seen before. But it was something that was real to them, but it was a, a picture. It was a picture of what God was really going to do. Now, these pictures, the manna was real, but its greater purpose is to symbolize something else. And, and that's type. The Holy Spirit puts real events in place in such a way that they represent something else. Uh, this manna represents the provision that God gives to his people basically through Jesus Christ. And we're going to see how it relates to Jesus Christ. But before we look at that, there are some things about the manna that do not compare to the Lord Jesus Christ, and we just need to, to, to bring those out. For instance, consider this. The manna fed the outward man, but Jesus Christ feeds the inward man. Manna was eaten by all the Israelites, but some of them were wicked. But it is those who are of Christ that eat of Christ. The manna could corrupt 
In other words, if you, did, if you kept it overnight, it got bad and it corrupted, it went bad. Not so the Lord Jesus Christ. Manna could only be found at certain times, early in the morning. But Christ is always found by those who seek him in the right way. Many who ate of the manna in the wilderness died. But all who eat of Christ live forever, eternally. And so as we look through the Bible and we think about the manna, we realize that it symbolizes two things for the future. In John 6, we read this, For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. They said therefore to him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. So there's two things represented, I believe, by the manna. The first is the written word of God. The Bible, that's God's word. And it's represented by the manna that God makes provision for his people. But the second, and maybe the more important one, is that it also represents the incarnate word of God. The incarnate word of God is Jesus Christ, the word in the flesh, incarnate. In John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And then down in verse 14 of John chapter 1, we read, And this word became flesh. That's incarnate. This world, this word incarnated, became flesh, and dwelt among us. And so the manna represents the written word of God and the incarnate word of God. In John 5, Jesus said, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that bear witness of me. They're tied together. God's provision is tied to his word, his written word, and to his incarnate word. One of the things that just uh, confuses me is I don't understand how Christians, how churches, how denominations, how even pastors, who you would think were good evangelical pastors, believe that they can deconstruct the Word of God, but go on believing in the incarnate Word of God. In other words, they can take away the written Word of God and still possess the incarnate Word of God. You can't. They go together. The Bible and Jesus go together. And this passage is a message about the faithfulness of the Word of God. And the manna is pictured in both. The manna is pictured as the written word of God and the incarnate word of God, the Bible and Jesus. It's a picture of both. As I, as I studied this and I looked at the manna, I found what I think are 28 pictures of the word of God in the manna. There are 15 pictures of the written word of God, and there are 19 pictures of the incarnate Word of God. Now I know that that, that equals uh, 34, and I told you there were 28. Well, six of them overlap. Six of them are a picture of, of both of them. But then again, almost everything that can be said about one 
can also be said about the other. <clears throat> so let's start with the written word of God. How is it a type of the written word of God? Well, I'm going to start with a rather simple one. We know that the written word of God is incomprehensible to the natural man. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. And so when a person without Jesus Christ, a person with no God knowledge, with no God heart, looks at the Bible, looks at the Word of God, they just simply can't understand it. And so they look at God's Word, they look at the Bible, and they say, what is it? What is it? It's the same with the manna. They, they, they knew it was there. They knew it was for some reason, but they didn't know what it was. And so they just said, what is it? That was the manna. Here's another one. The manna was despised by the multitude. In Numbers 11, it says, And the rabble who were among them had greedy desires, and also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt and the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our appetite is gone. There's nothing at all to look at except this manna. They despised it. You know, it was God's gift to them. It made provision for them. It gave them sustenance day by day, every day for 40 years. But they despised it as they could think about the fish and the leeks and the onions and the cucumbers and the melons and the garlic that they had had back in, in Egypt. Well, the Bible is despised by the rabble of the world. It's, it's despised. People don't want to know what's in the Bible and they don't want you to tell them what's in the Bible and they don't want to hear preached what's in the Bible because they despise the word of God because it goes against their pleasures. It goes against the things that they like, the things that they want. And so they despise the written word of God. Here's, here's another one. It was supernatural. It was not something that could be explained. They didn't know what it was. It wasn't something they had ever seen before. It's nothing that they'd, that, that, that's ever happened since. They don't know what it is. It was supernatural. And that it was so supernatural is a hindrance to faith for some people. Because this wasn't just some little uh, sighting in the desert. This was something big. There was enough manna to feed between one and two million people every day for 40 years. In Numbers 1, we read that there were 600,000 warriors in the camp. The approximates two million people. Each one of them took an omer, which is about six pints. So each one of them took about six pints a day. That's two million people. Six pints is 12 million pints a day, weighing approximately nine million pounds or 4,500 tons of manna. That's enough, you know, that, that's enough weight, that's enough space that we would be talking about 300 boxcars of manna, train boxcars of manna every day fell among the children of Israel for 40 years without fail. 
There's no natural explanation for that. Once again, there are those who try. And it's the same with the Bible, the Word of God. The Word of God is supernatural. The mistake that many make is trying to subject the Bible to a modern explanation when the Bible is the supernatural work of God. The manna was to be eaten. It was to be consumed. It wasn't enough to look at it. It wasn't enough to gather it. In order for it to do them any good, they had to eat it. You know, imagine, you know, in a couple of weeks when you sit down for your Thanksgiving meal and there's however much of your family you're going to have with you because of the, the situation now. Uh, they're saying that the groups will be smaller than in the past, but let's just say you still have that big old turkey and the dressing and the potatoes and the yams and the marshmallow yams and the, and the gravy and the cranberry sauce and you still you have all that stuff sitting on the table and your, your uh, mouth starts to water and you maybe even start to drool a little bit and you just sit there at the table and look at it. It doesn't do you any good until you eat it. And it's the same with the Word of God. It was the same with, with manna. It's the same with the Word of God. Uh, and, and we are blessed amongst all people Every any time in the world, we are blessed with ample access to the Word of God. You know, on, on my shelves in my office, in my study at the house, you know, I have a whole shelf. It's about, about that wide. There's nothing on it but Bibles, just different translations, uh, different, different editions, uh, different study Bibles. But they don't do me any good sitting on the shelf unless I take them down and, and look at them and, and read them. And it's the same way. It, it, uh, we, we have more access to God's Word than ever before. And if we don't use it, it's just as silly as sitting down to Thanksgiving meal and watching everybody else eat and not ever eating any yourself. It had to be gathered. The manna had to be gathered. They had to go out together and get it. The Word of God doesn't come by osmosis. It has to be gathered, and it has to be gathered every day, uh, in the morning, for, for one day, as much as you wanted to eat. <clears throat> and guys, your access to the Word of God is only limited by your appetite for it. If you want to study one verse a day and meditate on one verse a day, uh, you can consume it and internalize it, then then. Be satisfied with one verse a day. Maybe it'll take one chapter a day or one passage a day or one book a day. Uh, whatever it is that, that you decide, your your uh, appetite for it is, is the only thing that matters as far as your access to it goes. So let's look at the way that... Um, the manna is a type of the incarnate Word of God. The Word become flesh. Some of the pictures that, that we can see just right off the bat. It came down from heaven. It came with the glory of God, as we read in verse 10. It was ground and baked. The suffering of Jesus, he wasn't ground and baked, but he was beaten and crucified. But there, there are some other principles here that we need to see the other ways that the manna is a type of Jesus Christ. First of all, 
It was God's special provision to his people, and it was a free gift. It was a free gift. It was not because they deserved it. Do you know what they were doing when God gave it to them? They were complaining. You know, we read that in verse 2. They, they were complaining about it. You know, they're lucky that God is not like me. You know, I would have probably answered them something instead of raining bread down on them. I would have probably answered them something like, you lousy ingrates. I, I give you one thing and all you can do is complain. Because you see, they had prayed and prayed and prayed to be delivered from slavery in Egypt. They had prayed and prayed and prayed to be delivered from, from the Egyptians. And now God had given them that and they were ungrateful. And how did God react? He could have rained down fire and brimstone on them and just burned them to a crisp. But he did rain on them. He rained bread on them. He gave them manna to eat because God wanted to give it to them, not because they deserved it. Now, can I remind you of one thing that you already know? Jesus Christ is God's free gift to humans. His free gift to us. It's not because we deserve it. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. So when we sin, the wages, our just desserts for sinning, is death. But he says the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 5.8, Paul says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So our salvation in Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is God's provision for us, even though we don't deserve it. We're among those that God has blessed, and he's given a measure of his special love, even though we don't deserve it. And you know what that's called, right? You know what that's called? Some, somebody say it. Somebody say it. Yeah, grace. It's grace. That, that's the definition of grace. God giving to us something we don't deserve. It's, it's a freely given. God taking an extra measure for you and me. And then, this one's great. Where it happened, it met a need for them in what was called the wilderness of sin. Isn't that great? Exodus chapter 16, verse 1. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of sin which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt. Do I even need to explain that picture to you? The providence of God and the provision of God comes to them in this desert called sin. And folks, that's where God's provision for us comes. It comes to us in the midst of our sin, our greatest need is for God to do something about our sin. And then it must be taken, each one his own. It was a free gift. It was given, but you still had to receive it. You're out there in the desert in your tent, and you get up in this morning, and this stuff has fallen all around you. It's a free gift. All you have to go out 
is take your little Omer collector, however it was, and you put it in there, and you bring your Omer in, and you have your food for the day. It's a free gift, but you had to take it. Your mom, your dad, your husband, your wife, they couldn't take it for you. You had to take it for yourself. And it's absolutely essential that there is a time in your life, each one of us, when we actually gather Jesus Christ into ourself. No one else can do it for you. You're on your own. Each one of us, each individual, have need to have done that, accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. It's not enough just to look out there and see Him. It's not enough just to go to church and hear about Him. It's not enough just to, to recognize Him somehow or another that, yeah, there's a God in heaven and I believe in God. You have to reach out and take Jesus Christ for yourself. Ask Him to come into your heart and forgive your sins and to be your Lord, to be your Savior. So, to conclude, the picture is one that is for both. It's for Jesus Christ, and it's for his word. And it came to the children of Israel when they were in the desert of sin. They were in the desert of sin, and God gifted them by grace with provision for their greatest need. You have as much of it as you want, and your appetite for Jesus determines your level of spirituality. Your appetite for Jesus, for the Word of God, the Bible, determines your rate of growth. You know, in, in 100 years, all of those involved in this election will be gone from the earth. Probably we won't be able to vote anymore after we die, although that's not been uh, always the case. But in a hundred years, all those involved in this election will be gone from this earth. All those who are commenting on it, all those who are, who are spouting these big uh, uh, decisions about it, they'll all be gone. Only those who have received the grace of God in Jesus Christ will be with him in heaven. God makes provision for our needs. God has made provision for you in Jesus Christ. Do you accept that? Do you believe that? Let's pray together. 